You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello again, I'm Marvin O'Connell, Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Notre Dame, and I'm back again in our continuing discussion of certain aspects of the history of the Catholic Church. The last time we were together, we were talking about uh, Martin Luther and the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation. And we spent the great part of our time dealing with that most central and radical belief that pervades all Protestant faiths, and that is justification by faith alone. Perhaps you'll let me begin with, a, with an anecdote. When I was a very young priest, I was assigned to say a couple of masses in a parish where the pastor was ill. And the masses were scheduled at 9 and at 10. And uh, so I said the, the 9 o'clock mass took about 40 minutes, 42, 43 minutes. I came back into the sacristy, I threw off the vestments, and I ran down the back stairs so that I could have a smoke before the next mass began at 10. And I had just taken the palm oil out of the pack and had just lit it when across the parking lot I saw a little old lady bouncing along, coming toward me. <laughs> she had a cloth coat on and a, and a hat with some fake flowers in it. And I know I'll spend some time in purgatory for this. I uh, had this reaction. Oh, geez, here comes this old lady. She's going to want a rosary blessed or something, and I'm not going to get to finish my smoke. Well, she came up to me, and without any kind of preface, she just said, Brother, are you saved? And for once in my life, I did answer correctly according to my own principles, which was this. I said, Madam, I'm working on it. Well, she didn't really pay any attention to that. She said, you have no idea how wonderful it is to be saved, to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now here, she said, read this, and she handed me a pamphlet. Then she toddled off, and whether she even saw the cigarette, I, I'm, I'm not sure. But here was an example of, shall we call it, Luther's great success, that the proposal that he made in his teaching, and which developed over the years, was this basic one to which we adverted in our last discussion together. Justification by faith alone means the acceptance of Christ as your personal savior, and that there is consolation in such a belief one could not for a moment dispute. After the posting of the 95 Theses, Luther's life settled into a time of great controversy, which resulted in his excommunication in the year 1521. The authorities of the church would not accept his description of the doctrine of justification, and so he found it necessary to repudiate those authorities. So we have, therefore, a twofold kind of Latin slogan to cover what it was Luther was up to, and indeed, as it turned out, what uh, other Protestants were up to as well as the years passed by. Sola fides, sola scriptura. 
sola fides means faith alone. One is justified by faith alone, as we have discussed that. And one finds religious truth in the scripture alone, sola scriptura. Not in tradition, not in the practice of the church over the previous 1500 years, certainly not in the authoritative pronouncements of pope and bishops, of those who claim to possess the apostolic character and the mandate from Jesus himself to teach what revelation means. One can find that, Luther said, only in scripture. He had not foreseen that this step would have to be taken. He had been confident that he could convince uh, everybody, including the highest authorities in the church in Germany and indeed the Pope himself, that what he was describing was genuinely the correct meaning of divine revelation. Having failed to do that, he turned his back on those authorities and for the rest of his life put together an alternative system, if you like. He returned to Wittenberg after these years of controversy on the road and settled there and stayed there for the rest of his life. He married in 1525 a woman called Catherine von Bora, who was a former nun. They had six children. They lived in the, in the old Augustinian monastery, which completely emptied because the people there accepted Luther's version of Revelation and gave up their religious lives and their priesthood. There he stayed, as I say, for the rest of his life, writing endlessly, speaking endlessly, and getting himself into trouble now and then by the various inconsistencies of his teachings. But nevertheless, by the time he died in 1546, uh, the history of the world had changed. It changed, I mean, because of him. A couple of general things we can say as a result of Luther's movement and his survival. The supremacy of the Bible within the Protestant communions, whether Lutheran or not, was certainly something that sola scriptura established. The supremacy of the Bible as a source of teaching and also as an instrument of piety. Like a lot of other human things, however, this was a two-edged sword. Certainly, the Bible as instrument of piety is the great strength of all the Protestant communions. It's something which Catholics could learn a great deal from Protestants about. But as a source of teaching, it was a great weakness. The Bible is a very difficult book and admits of many, many interpretations. And unless there is some kind of agreement as to an authoritative interpretation, then the tendency is to be terribly diffuse. And of course, that's what's happened to Protestantism has broken into so many competing sects. Another permanent aspect of Luther's work was the shift away from sacramental activity as the center of Christian worship as Protestants practiced it, and the uh, emphasis placed upon the sermon. Because if faith was the only thing which justifies, then it is the stimulation of faith which becomes the all-important religious act. And that comes from preaching. If you look at churches, Protestant churches built in the 17th, 18th centuries, you'll find a kind of a visual confirmation of this. The churches, for example, built by 
Sir Christopher Wren in London, of which there are still many, many surviving. There you see the prominence of the pulpit. The pulpit is the center of attention and activity. The old altar is now pushed away, has become a little tiny communion table. There is no sacrifice of the mass. That, as Luther always said, was a blasphemous fable. But what is important to him and to his followers and to other Protestant denominations is the promulgation of the word through preaching. That's why, if you look at your television set and we see the TV evangelists, this is what is at the center of everything. It is the preacher. Well, there are many other aspects that one could dwell on, but I'd like to move now, if I may, to a somewhat different, although very much collateral subject. Collateral because England ultimately became a part of the Reformation movement, but different because the Reformation in England was such a different kind of phenomenon. And because of the differences historically, the different stages that I hope we can touch upon here for the next few moments, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, emerged as a very different kind of institution than from the other Protestant churches on the continent. I think the first principle that we need to invoke when we want to look at the Reformation in England is that it differs from what happened in Germany and Switzerland and Holland, to some extent in France, in that the Reformation in those areas was a genuinely popular movement. And it was one that was primarily concerned with distinct religious positions, rooted, if you'll pardon this, this repetition, but it's so important, I really don't think I need to apologize for it, rooted in the notion of justification by faith alone and all that that meant and all the ramifications that flowed from it. In England, by contrast, the Reformation settlement was imposed from above. It was primarily a political phenomenon. Now it had religious consequences, needless to say, but in the way in which it unfolded and the kind of impact that it had upon the English people, it was very different. And since of all the European roots that we Americans consider part of our culture, surely the English one is the most important. And therefore, the way in which the Reformation manifested itself in England possesses a unique importance for us. We have to begin this story by bringing to our attention what is called the Tudor dynasty. A dynasty is a ruling family. And at the end of the Middle Ages and into modern times, indeed into relatively recent times, it was the instrumentation whereby political power was passed from one generation to the next. And that in turn was rooted in medieval circumstances whereby the only really valuable thing in a pretty primitive economy was land. And along with land went economic affluence, and along with economic affluence went political power and authority, as is always the case. Now, land passes from one generation to the next by inheritance, from the father to the son to the grandson, and so forth. And so it was that medieval people thought it perfectly normal and natural that power should pass, political authority should pass, 
as land did from one generation to the next. Thus, the emergence of dynasty, the idea of a ruling family. Now, the Tudor dynasty lasted from 1485 until 1603. It embraced five sovereigns, all of whom, of course, had the family name Tudor. Uh, the, the emergence of the first of the Tudors, King Henry VII, was the result of a series of civil wars which had been going on for 25 or 30 years before, what historians have romantically called the Wars of the Roses, because it was a conflict between two branches of the English royal family, the House of York and the House of Lancaster. The House of York had for a symbol emblazoned on its coat of arms a white rose. The House of Lancaster had on its shield, on its coat of arms, a red rose. Well, the result of the Wars of the Roses was the ultimate triumph of the Red Rose, the Red Rose of Lancaster, in the person of Henry Tudor, who now became King Henry VII. Henry VII was a very able man, not a very likable man, but a very able one. And he is often referred to by English historians as the first really modern ruler that England had. But he was not altogether secure upon his throne. He had climbed upon it over the bodies of his cousins, the Yorkists, the White Rose. And his own legitimacy, his own right to the throne, was one that was not altogether accepted. He was therefore the object, during the early years of his reign, of many Yorkist plots and attempts to overthrow him. He quite easily dispatched such opposition. But as I say, he remained insecure. And so he was very anxious that the European community of princes and kings would accept him. One way to do that was to have an alliance with one of the up-and-coming continental monarchies. The most up-and-coming monarchy of all was that in Spain. And so in the 1590s, early in the 1590s, Henry began negotiations with the Spanish king and queen who were Ferdinand and Isabella, the same Isabella who commissioned Columbus in 1492. And the way in which diplomacy was carried on in a dynastic sitting had a lot to do with marriage. We're dealing with families here, and so although it's partly symbol, it's also partly reality. If Spain and England are to become allies, the best way to seal that alliance, both symbolically and really, was to unite the two royal families. In the person of Arthur, Henry VII's oldest son and the heir to the throne, and in the person of Catherine, uh, the second daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. And so when these two children, is what they were, two or three years old, were formally engaged, this was a sign that England and Spain were in alliance with one another. When they were both about 15 years old, the marriage was solemnly celebrated in London, and Catherine left her Spanish homeland and took up residence in England, beginning what was to be for her a very checkered career. She was always immensely popular with the English people, but she was ultimately to suffer a very sad fate. So Arthur and Catherine were married. Now, the marriage law of the church at that time, and indeed now, 
couple of things must be said about that. In order for a marriage to be valid, in order for it to be binding and permanent, you had to go through a public ceremony of the sort we're all familiar with. Do you, Arthur, take this woman, Catherine, to be your lawful wedded wife, etc., etc.? That's the first thing that has to be done. The second thing is the marriage must be, to use the technical term, consummated. That is, the two people must have sexual relations with one another. If, for some reason or other, between the ceremony and the bedroom, there was some interruption and the two never did make love to one another, then the marriage would not be binding. This proved to be of some significance uh, later on. Arthur and Catherine thus were formally married. They were formally escorted, as was the custom in those days, with lots of double-meaning jokes and the sort of thing you could expect with people after a wedding half-liquored up uh, to their bedroom and placed ceremoniously in bed together, and then the company withdrew, and of course the normal thing you, you would assume would take place, and the law assumed that it would take place. Whether it did, in fact, in this case, came to be a matter of dispute later on. Now, Arthur was, by all accounts, a very pleasant, kindly, guileless youth who suffered from very bad health, especially in the lungs. And the marriage had taken place only for a matter of months when Arthur died of tuberculosis. So here we have, at the age of 15, or thereabouts, this princess who is now the Dowager Princess of Wales. She's a widow, still a teenager. Now, Henry VII, still anxious to maintain the Spanish alliance, and Ferdinand and Isabella apparently were agreeable, said, in effect, okay, Arthur is gone. My next son, my only other son, named Henry, could marry Catherine, and then we could continue the alliance and symbolize it in the same fashion. Well, there was a problem with that. And the problem, again, was rooted in the marriage law of the church. There were a group of situations, I guess you'd call them, that the law called impediments to a valid marriage. For example, there was the impediment of consanguinity. That is, if you were related by blood, if brother and sister could not according to church law, enter into a valid marriage. There was the impediment created by force or fear, the idea that the person was forced into a wedding out of fear for his or her life, for example. That marriage was not binding. And then there was another one, one that doesn't strike us as being quite that obvious, but it was obvious given the social circumstances of the time. This was the impediment called affinity. Affinity means the relationship that you have with your in-laws. Our very terminology gives witness to this. We speak of our brother's wife as being our sister-in-law. Not in blood, but in law. I'm legally bound to her because she is married to my brother. Well, the way that the marriage law developed took this into account within the context of the social situation of the time. Let me give you this example. Charlie meets Susie and they fall in love. And there's a courtship and then there's the first quarrel and then there's the first kiss and then ultimately there's the wedding. 
And they go off, let us say, to Brighton on the south coast of England for their honeymoon, and then they come home. But here's where the difference comes in. They don't come to their own little cottage in the west. They come home to Charlie's father's house. They come back into the larger family, not the nuclear family with which you and I are most familiar, but with the old patriarch, his sons, his son's wives, and all of them living in proximity with one another. Well, the reason that affinity became such an important part of the church law was that the church was always concerned, above all, as it still is, to protect the marriage bond. So to go back to my example, Charlie brings Susie back into his home, and there is his unmarried brother, Pat. And Pat and Susie are living in the same house. They see one another every day. And let us say, for the sake of my example, Pat and Susie fall in love. And the result, of course, is the undermining of the marriage with Charlie. And here is where the church, in its marriage law, held up a warning hand. It said this, Susie can never marry Pat because she is related to him by affinity. The idea being that there's absolutely no point in Susie mooning about Pat or meeting him behind the barn, engaging in idyllic trysts with him, because there is no way that they could ever have a permanent and stable relationship. They might be tempted to kill Charlie, to take the most extreme example, but even if they did, they couldn't marry. That's how seriously the society of the time took the relationship and the impediment called affinity. Well, you can see, Prince Henry, now Prince of Wales, now heir to the throne of England since his brother's death, is related to his brother's widow by affinity. And there stands then this impediment in the face of their marriage. Well, the sovereigns involved, Henry VII and the King and Queen of Spain, were anxious enough to continue their alliance and to do it in the way which was familiar to dynastic politicians, that is, through marriage, that they applied to the highest authority in Christendom, the Pope, the highest authority when it came to ecclesiastical law, for a dispensation from affinity for Henry and Catherine. Remember what a dispensation is. It's an exception to the law. It doesn't rule out the law. The law is presumed to be good and proper and solid and all that. But there are circumstances which allow an exception to be made in a particular case. And this is what the Spanish and English monarchs argued. They said that the alliance between Spain and England is very important for maintaining the peace of Europe and the harmonious relationship among princes. And since that is the case, since a very large good will come from this alliance, they asked that the Pope dispense in this case from the impediment of affinity. And the Pope responded favorably and did so. This was all documented. The document sent to Henry VII stating that the dispensation was indeed granted. Well, Henry, once he got it, 
began to wonder whether he might not find even a better deal somehow or other. Maybe he could marry Catherine after his own wife died, or any other number of possibilities occurred to him. And so he put the dispensation in a drawer and did not use it. And there it was in 1509 when Henry VII died and was succeeded on the throne by his son, Henry VIII. The first thing Henry did, Henry, the new Henry, I shouldn't say the new Henry, the new king, Henry VIII did, was to put the dispensation into act. I think this is an important thing to remember. It wasn't that Henry had imposed upon him the dispensation. It was his choice. Now, he was a little short of his 18th birthday when he came to the throne. Catherine was about five years older. He had great regard for her great respect for her intelligence and her her moral rectitude and all the other good things you could think of. And so he didn't hesitate to put the dispensation to use. And the first great public act of his reign was his marriage to Catherine, Catherine of Aragon, as she's usually remembered because of her Spanish connection. All went quite well in the early years of the marriage. The respect which Henry had for his wife, who was older than he was and in many ways more intelligent than he was. That respect continued to uh, undergird their relationship. But one problem put the marriage into hazard, and that was the inability of Catherine to produce a male heir. One must remember in talking about dynastic politics how important it was that the queen be fertile that she produced children so that the next generation and then the next generation and the next, the dynasty can continue. If the line dies out because there are no children, that is the ultimate tragedy for a dynastic situation. Catherine did bear one live child, a girl called Mary, in 1516. But she also had stillbirths and miscarriages six or seven of them at least, perhaps more. And all in all, this became a very serious political problem. We look back through the centuries to the time of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon through the prism of the two probably best and most successful monarchs that England ever had, Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I. And so we find it hard to replicate the kind of feelings that the English populace had when they looked toward Windsor Castle and they saw this one sickly little girl, and that was all, if the dynasty was to continue. And so I, I'm saying all this because I don't want to underestimate how important it was when Henry made his break with the church over his marriage that it wasn't just lust, it was lust, by all means, but it was also political considerations. The English had not had a reigning queen since the 12th century, that is 400 years had passed since there had been a woman on the throne. And so there was a great deal of disquiet at the thought that if something took Henry off, a little girl would become queen. Henry began to play around. In 1519, one of his mistresses bore him a son. And this, to him, was a kind of sign. He'd carry the baby through the 
corridors of Windsor and, and Whitehall and his other palaces and hold the baby aloft and, and say, in effect, look, folks, it's not my fault that I don't have a legitimate male heir. It isn't my fault. Look, I fathered a boy. I can do it, as it were. The succession of mistresses, however, did not, for the moment, upset the ultimate relationship between Catherine and Henry, but it certainly eroded it. And then, about 1525, along came a woman called Anne Bullen. Anne Bullen was a lady-in-waiting to Queen Catherine. She belonged to a very powerful, noble family, the Howard family. The Dukes of Norfolk were Howards. She was, by all accounts, not a beautiful woman in the conventional sense, but a very fetching one, with wonderful eyes and a wonderfully engaging personality. And all in all, a very attractive young woman. And Henry fell for her in a way that he had never fallen for his earlier mistresses. And of course, this became the, the crucial point. Anne Bullen, no doubt advised by some of her powerful Howard relatives, took a stance which absolutely flabbergasted Henry VIII. It was this. When he approached her for sexual relations, she said to him, Your Majesty, I will be Your Majesty's friend. I will be Your Majesty's sister. If it were possible, I would be Your Majesty's wife, but I will not be Your Majesty's mistress. Well, no woman had ever said no to Henry before. He was absolutely astounded. And in her consistent maintenance of this position, his surprise and his irritation at the situation he found himself in became greater and greater. He wrote her all kinds of love letters, and interesting point, if you were ever in Rome, be sure you go and take a tour of the Vatican Library, and there in a glass case, you'll see the love letters of Henry VIII to Anne Bullen. What an ironic place for them to have ended up. Must have been some secret agent or other who filched them from Anne's boudoir and sent them to Rome. Henry's conscience began to bother him, or at least so he said. The reason that we don't have any children, conveniently leaving aside Princess Mary, the reason we don't have any children, he began to say, is God's punishment for breaking the law of affinity. We really aren't married. That's my worry, he said, married to Catherine, because affinity is something that prevents valid marriages. And God is trying to tell us this by not giving us an heir. And this is the position he took. First, beginning about 1526, he initiated his suit in Rome to get his marriage annulled. Now, Henry VIII is often referred to as many-divorced. He had six wives, of course, but divorced often. Well, it wasn't divorce in the modern American sense of breaking a valid marriage. It was an annulment, that is to say, a statement that this marriage has never existed in the first place. And the legal grounds on which the king proceeded was that the dispensation which his father and Catherine's father and mother had secured from the Pope at the time was flawed. That the arguments presented were false. 
And if that were the case, then the dispensation was invalid. It had been secured under false pretenses. If the dispensation was invalid, then affinity still existed between Henry and Catherine, and therefore they could not be validly married, and he would be free to marry again. This was the line he took. In Rome, already having terrible problems with the Lutheran Reformation in Germany, the last thing the Pope of the time wanted was a quarrel with the King of England, who had been really a kind of a paragon, at least in terms of support of traditional doctrine. He'd even written a book, or had it written for him and then signed it, called the Defensio Septum Sacramentorum, a defense of the seven sacraments, a defense written specifically to refute Luther's position on the sacraments. So the Pope wanted, above all, to avoid a quarrel with the King of England. And so he bargained for time. He kept saying, well, now, let's look at this from this point of view. Let's look at it from that point of view. Let's, uh, let's see what happened. And in his heart, Clement VII, the Pope at the time, I'm pointing at my uh, head instead of my heart, but I don't think Clement VII had a heart, so that's not altogether bad. He was heard to say, I would give all the jewels in Christendom if the queen were in her grave. The trouble was the queen, Queen Catherine, had very powerful relatives who could not be ignored, the Spanish royal family, and she had the courage of her convictions. It would have been possible if she had not disputed the case, it would have gone forward and Henry would have got his annulment, but she would not suffer herself to be dishonored in this fashion or her only child to be declared a bastard because Princess Mary, if the marriage was not valid, was illegitimate. And so Catherine determined to fight the suit. And it dragged on and on. And finally, uh, an Italian cardinal was sent from Rome to form a court with an English cardinal who was in Henry VIII's pocket. And a great trial was held in the area of London called Blackfriars, where the big Dominican convent was located. There's a railroad station there now. This was the only time during the course of the trial that both Henry and Catherine were present. And the disputes went on between the canon lawyers and the two cardinals sitting up there looking very solemn and wondering what to do, when suddenly Catherine arose from her throne and crossed the room to where Henry sat on his throne. And she knelt at his feet and she said to him, My Lord, you know that we are truly man and wife, as only you can know, because you know that I came to your bed a virgin that my marriage to Arthur was never consummated. Yes, we were placed in the bed together, but we were children and, and he was sick and nothing happened. Therefore, since I was a virgin, my marriage to Arthur was not consummated, was not valid, and I'm not related to you by affinity. It was a, a moment of great drama and nostalgia. And the chronicler who tells us this says that Henry, the Catherine is kneeling there in front of him, and Henry reached out his hand for a moment, put it on her head, maybe remembering those early days of their marriage, and then took the hand away. He was not to be swayed. And when, ultimately, the court refused to grant him the annulment, his fury knew no bounds. 
And so he changed his position to this. He said, it's not a question of the dispensation from affinity being invalid. It is that no pope nor anybody else nor any other authority has the right to dispense from affinity. It cannot be done. And the pope of my father's time, in having done this, broke the divine law. And we've had enough of that, says Henry. We've had enough of that. And in his fury at not getting his way in this instance, and let us not forget his concern about the continuation of the dynasty, he summoned what historians have called the Reformation Parliament. The Reformation Parliament sat for seven years, not all the time, but for a couple of months each year. But that was most unusual in those days. Parliaments only met once in a while, every seven or eight or ten years. Here is a parliament meeting every year for several months and effecting the king's will. And through a series of statutes, King Henry VIII decided to get rid of the authority of the pope, the pope who had turned him down in an area in which he was most concerned. And so the whole ecclesiastical system in England was redefined. The king became the head of the church through what was called the Act of Supremacy. All of the machinery of the ecclesiastical world was thus placed in the hands of the king. Here was Caesaropapism on a grand scale. The victims, those who resisted this movement, are famous enough. One thinks of John Fisher and even more of St. Thomas More. But the resistance was not enough for the king, driven by his own desire to bring to heel those who had opposed him. However, Henry VIII was not interested in changing anything else. He was, in some respects, a very conservative fellow. He got rid of papal authority, but he wanted to maintain all the rest of the Catholic system so that we can speak of Henry VIII's Reformation as an attempt to establish Catholicism without the Pope. The sacrifice of the Mass was maintained, celibacy of the clergy, auricular confession, the seven sacraments, all those things, which Luther did away with, with the exception of the real presence, all those things were maintained by the new head of the church, the king. He may have wavered on this or that once in a while, but basically he remained in that stance. And this is therefore the first of the streams that go into the English Reformation, so different from the Continental Reformation. The Continental Reformation begins with a doctrinal position, justification by faith alone, and the repudiation of ecclesiastical authority only when that authority refuses to see the truth, as Luther would have expressed it. In England, it's the reverse. The king does away with papal authority and all other authority external to himself, but does not change the basic doctrines. Justification is still a matter of faith and works. The Episcopal structure is maintained. Thus we have in the daughter church of the Church of England in the United States is called the Episcopal or Episcopalian Church. On the continent, bishops were done away with, and the whole notion of apostolic succession was done away with. Not in England. The one area in which Henry VIII did 
aside from the question of papal authority, the one other area in which he contravened the teaching and tradition of the church was his suppression of all the religious orders and the whole notion that there should be within the Catholic community some people who practice the vows, the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Instead of maintaining them, King Henry VIII suppressed them. He seemed to have done so, however, not out of any kind of doctrinal persuasion, but more because he lusted after their property. And so in 1536, 37, and 38, you have the gradual suppression of the monasteries and the friaries and all the other organizations of men and women who live their lives as Catholics in trying to fulfill the vows. The amount of property that then accrued to the throne as a result of the confiscation of the properties of these organizations was very, very considerable. And historians are unanimous in testifying to the fact that it tended to shift a lot of the economic power in the country away from the ecclesiastical to the new and rising middle class to whom Henry sold or in some instances gave the property which he had confiscated. Henry VIII is famous as having had six wives. Catherine was the first one, set aside by Act of Parliament. Anne Bullen was the second. Her he executed for adultery and treason a few years after he married her. His third wife died in childbirth. His fourth he divorced. His fifth he also beheaded for adultery and treason. Apparently those two went together in Henry's mind. And finally the sixth, Catherine Parr, outlived him. He left behind three legitimate children, the Princess Mary, whom we've already mentioned, the Princess Elizabeth, who was Anne Bullen's daughter, and Edward, who was of his third marriage. But the double standard vis-a-vis -vis gender, of course, held in those days. And so when Henry died in 1547, he was succeeded by his son, who took precedence because he was male. The boy was only 10 years old, and he therefore had to rule through what was called a regency council. He was a pleasant and very pious young boy, who, however, suffered from extremely bad health, as had his uncle Arthur. He was never himself in control of affairs. The Regency Council governed in his name. And on the Regency Council, and here's where the second stream comes into play, dominating the Regency Council were a group of people, primarily the Archbishop of Canterbury, a man called Thomas Cranmer, but other laymen who were also on the Council, who were genuinely convinced Protestants in the continental sense of the word. That is, they believed in justification by faith alone and all that that meant for the organization and functioning of the church. Henry VIII would not put up with that sort of thing. And these people, particularly Cranmer, who was by nature a timid man, did not attempt to assert their views as long as Henry was alive. Once Henry was dead and this boy was now the king, they had the chance to do so. And so it is that between 1547 and 1553, the genuinely Lutheran views of justification, revelation, the sacraments, original sin, those genuinely Protestant views came to be the official ones taught by the monarchy. 
This is the second stream. Catholicism without the Pope, and now genuine Lutheran doctrine. Edward VI died of consumption in 1553. There was an attempt by the Regency Council to eliminate the next person in line for the throne, who was Princess Mary, because she was a Catholic. They did not succeed. Mary Tudor had many faults, but she also had the courage, the physical courage, which was very much part of the Tudor family. And although she was under house arrest at the time her brother died, she simply went out into the stables, got on a horse, and started galloping toward London. And before long, she had 10,000 men riding behind her. A happy omen for the beginning of a reign that was very, very unhappy. Mary was determined to restore Catholicism to England. She married her cousin, the King of Spain, Philip II. And he, of course, orthodox of the most orthodox, urged her on in this endeavor. She tried hard to do it by persuasion, but she also did it by a series of executions, persecutions, which have gained her the sobriquet, a very unpleasant one, of Bloody Mary. Under her reign, some 250 Protestants were executed, burnt at the stake. It was a terrible time. And it was terrible particularly because those who had been converted to Lutheran views during Edward VI's reign had done so in obedience to the government, which imposed it upon them. And now here comes a change in government, and now they're expected to revert to another religion, a religion which they had been taught was an abomination. It was a terrible thing and an ironic thing, and one which has resounded down through the years. Mary died in 1558 and was succeeded by her sister, her half-sister, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, as far as Catholics were concerned, was illegitimate. She was Anne Bullen's daughter, and Anne Bullen had been thrust into her queenly title in defiance of all that Catholics held dear. And so there was no doubt that Elizabeth would never herself revert to Catholicism, because if she did, she'd find herself outside looking in. Instead, she decided to see if she could put together a regime which would satisfy most people. She knew from the beginning that those who were extreme Protestants, like the ones who had died under her sister's reign, or if I may call them so, extreme Catholics, that is those willing to suffer the kind of martyrdom that Fisher and Moore underwent, she could never satisfy them. But she took the gamble that in the great middle, if she handled herself with some prudence and some care, she could come up with a solution that most people would accept. And so there was passed through the parliament once again an act of supremacy, making the queen not the head of the church, but the governor of the church. That was a gender issue. No man, no Protestant man particularly would accept the notion that a woman could be the head of the church. So Elizabeth didn't care about that kind of triviality. She said, okay, call me governor, just so I'm in charge, which indeed she was. And the second act passed through Parliament was the Act of Uniformity. And this dictated the kind of worship which would now become the standard in the Anglican Communion. To buttress these two positions, there was passed first also 
what are called the 39 Articles of Religion. These were statements, propositions, having to do with a lot of these tortured questions like justification, which were Protestant really in spirit, although there was some ambiguity in them. And the second thing was the introduction of the Book of Common Prayer, which was really the Roman liturgy translated into gorgeous English. Remember, this is the generation of when the, arguably the English language reached its height, the generation of Shakespeare and the King James Version of the Bible. Elizabeth was right in her gamble. Most people did accept her settlement. The extreme Protestants, we call them Puritans now, did not. She drove them underground. The dedicated Catholics did not either, and she killed 183 of them in the most barbarous fashion. Not, however, as religious dissidents, but as traitors to her regime. We have Marian martyrs, we have Elizabethan martyrs, but it's the winners who write history, and so we have Bloody Mary and Good Queen Bess. So it has always been. And so the Anglican Church emerged out of the Elizabethan regime as partly Protestant, partly Catholic, and altogether Erastian, that is to say, altogether controlled by the government. And so it has gone down to our own day, a strange hybrid, and yet one filled with the names of many a genuine and admirable person, I need hardly say. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.